0: Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I want you to turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Zephaniah It's toward the back of the Old Testament between the books of Haggai and Habakkuk, I believe. Zephaniah 317. So take your Bible or your handy-dandy Bible app on your phone. Or if you don't have your Bible, the text is actually there in your bulletin insert. While you're turning to Zephaniah, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there's probably someone in this room that is a fan <laughs> okay, that's that's too easy. There's probably a number of someones in this room that are fans of someone, something. Maybe there's a particular singer that you just love to listen to, or a particular sports team, or even an individual player that you follow. Perhaps an uh, an actor whose performances you enjoy, or a writer that you just love to read, a public figure that you support. Well, today. We kind of tend to think of a fan as uh, really someone who just sort of casually follows someone or something, but is not wholly committed to that. And so they they get labels like uh, fair weather fan or bandwagon fan or something like that. But actually, if you research that word fan, you look it up in Webster's Dictionary it will say that fan is actually short for fanatic. A fanatic is defined as an excessively enthusiastic admirer. An excessively enthusiastic admirer. Someone with single minded devotion, with uh, zeal, undying zeal. That is a fan. Um, there was actually a radio station several years back asked the question, if somebody offered you $2 million to give up sports for two years, could you do it? That was the question at hand. Sports talk station was inviting listeners to call in. Of course, that mean, it means you have to give up, you know, games on TV, no games on radio. Obviously, you, you, you can't go in person. I mean, that's, that's a given. Uh, no sports page in the paper. You can't watch the highlight films on espn no tuesday morning arguing about the monday night football game the night before none of that give it up for two years one fan phoned in and said that he would definitely not give up sports not even for 25 million he said it's where i turn when i pick up the paper in the morning It's where I go when I'm on the internet. It's what I watch on television. It's what I listen to on the radio in the car. Everywhere I go, it surrounds everything that I do. Well, it's interesting. I've observed in my own experience in life, and I believe this is true, that every single one of us needs that person in our life, a biggest fan, an admirer with single-minded zeal and unfortunately none of us not all of us realize that we actually do have that not so secret admirer we call him god you see like that fan who would never give up his sport who surrounds his entire life with it you are central to everything That God does. And the depths of His love for you are actually illustrated in this verse we're gonna read Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. If you have the place, read with me. It says, The Lord your God is with you, He is mighty to save, He will take great delight in you, He will rejoice over you with singing. I'm sorry, I skipped one. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Or as it says in the Holman Christian uh, Standard Version on that last phrase, it says, he will delight in you with shouts of joy. Now, church, before we can ever hope to understand how this word applies to us in the here and now, we first have to understand its meaning back in the then and there. So let me offer you a little bit of historical context. Obviously, this comes from Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a a prophet and a priest who produced the 36th book of the Old Testament. This book was completed roughly 20 years before Nebuchadnezzar came to power in Babylon. So it's a short time before the uh, Babylonian exile actually took place. Uh, He is a contemporary of Jeremiah, another one of the pre-exilic prophets. And a lot of Zephaniah's message dealt with the coming judgment upon the people of Judah. See, one of the primary jobs of the Old Testament prophets was basically to serve as a covenant enforcement mediator. Basically, what that means is that when God's people weren't living in accordance with the covenant that he'd made with them, he would send one of the prophets to let them know about it. And this was the case with Zephaniah. But because Judah had continually rebelled against God, there were consequences to be had. In fact, about 70 years worth of exile, to be specific. While Zephaniah, probably of all the minor prophets, gave the most forceful description of the judgment that was to come, he was also very quick to point out the possibility of restoration for those people who are willing to turn back to God. So, the unique thing about this proclamation of love here in Zephaniah chapter 3 is that it's actually made in the midst of God's warnings of impending wrath and judgment upon his people because of their rebellion against him. God had given them notice that their country was going to be utterly destroyed. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Babylon begins a decade-long siege of Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., some scholars think 587 B.C., Jerusalem would be sacked and the remaining people of Judah would be taken away into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And so what we have here is, is a passage where, like a loving parent who professes love For their child, even in the act of disciplining that child, God is still speaking love to them, giving Judah a glimpse into the future, to a day of restoration, and motivating them to live lives that are pleasing to him. Now, before we delve right into the verse and kind of break it up, dissect it, and look at it more closely, one final note on matters of biblical interpretation. When we, the readers, have the task of distinguishing between the message that was intended for the original hearers, the original audience that was being addressed, and the then and there, and the application for us today in the here and now, there's this matter that we have to deal with called the principle of extended application. In other words, we examine the situation and the circumstances then and the, uh, the context that the original hearers were going through, and then we compare it to our situation now. Are the two the same? If they are, we automatically can extend that application to us today. But what if they're not? Well, we know that they're not because none of us is being carried away today in Babylonian exile. That's when you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the timeless truth? that's being taught in this passage. What is the principle that God would have me take away from this passage that I can apply today? Very specifically for us this morning, why is this proclamation in Zephaniah important for us to take notice of today? Well, it's very simple. Even though it was addressed to the people of Judah, it still teaches us today something about the character of God and how that character is actually played out in our own lives today. So look at verse 17 there. Five things that I want you to see that describe our biggest fan, God. And here's the first one. God seeks. God seeks. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is with you. All right, now, put a pin in that for a second. I'm gonna back up one step. And talk about this. When you're reading through the Psalms, now depending on your translation, this term may or may not be there. But as you're reading through the Psalms, you ever notice a break in the Psalm and you see that word Selah? Do you ever wonder what that means? Well, come to find out Selah is actually a musical notation. Because remember, the Psalms were originally meant to be sung. This was the Old Testament hymn book. So, it's a musical notation that basically it means to pause and reflect. It's a deliberate interruption in the train of thought telling you to stop, to meditate, to reflect. I say that to say this. I believe there are times in life when God is teaching us to pause and to reflect. It may be a time of silence. It may be a spiritual valley that you're going through, a time of testing, when perhaps God has given the appearance of having distance himself just to see how we're going to respond in a time of struggle. Are we going to be faithful to him? Are we going to trust him? Or will we continue to be self-reliant and do things our own ways, continue to be stubborn and deal with the consequences of our, our own choices? Folks, I do believe there are some times in life when God might seem Distant. And I guarantee you, some of those folks who were taken away into Babylonian exile, they probably felt exactly the same way. Where are you, God? But when I think about God appearing to be distant, it makes me think of the story of Ma and Paul. Ma and Paul got up uh, one Saturday morning, and they realized they needed to drive to town to get some groceries and supplies. And so they, they hop into the old 1965 Ford pickup truck. They get out on the uh, farm-to-market road, and they start making that trek, you know, 10, 15 miles into town. And they're putting along yeah, about 15 miles an hour below the speed limit because they're not in a hurry to get anywhere. And in the rearview mirror, they see a tiny red, red speck. But that tiny red speck is getting larger and larger and larger. They realize it's a sports car, a bright red sports car, and it is coming down the road, lightning fast. And it begins to pass Ma and Pa on the left. And as this bright red sports car passes Ma and Pa on the left, they look over and they see a young couple riding together in this sports car. And and, uh, the girl is sitting so close to the boy. I mean, she's practically sitting in his lap and they zoom on down the road and they're gone. So Ma sitting there in the cab of that pickup truck. She looks over at Paul on the other side. There's a space between them. And she says, "Paul, how come we don't sit like that no more?" And Paul says, "Ma, I ain't the one who's moved." Now, the point of the silly story is the fact that if God seems distant to us, it's probably because we've moved away from him. But you see, God makes us a wonderful promise here in Zephaniah that the Lord your God is with you. Literally translated from the Hebrew, it means among, in the midst of. In some contexts, it even means Within. Now, how true is that for us today? If you're a Christian, if you've come to that moment where you have committed your life to Christ, you have trusted him for salvation, eternal life, the Bible says that his Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. The Lord your God is within you. Now, we need to understand something. God is not some celestial observer, a spectator. He's not a, as some people would say, a clockmaker who created us, wound us up, set us down, and then left us. That's not how God works. And yet some people think that. You you may recall, those of you who are old enough, uh, back during the first Gulf War, Bette Midler, who who loves to make a political statement, Bette, Bette Midler came out with this song called From a Distance. And it was a beautiful song. And the aim was to promote peace, which is a good thing. And uh, you may recall the the chorus of the song. It was was kind of repetitive, but God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. I thought that's beautiful, Bette Midler, but that is so wrong. That's not the way God is. The Lord your God is with you. I like the way A.W. Tozer, he was a renowned pastor and author in the 20th century. I like the way he describes the nearness of God. He says, so when we sing, draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, we're not thinking of the nearness of place, but the nearness of relationship. It is for increasing degrees of awareness that we pray for a more perfect consciousness of the divine presence we need never shout across the spaces to an absent god he is nearer than our own soul closer than our most secret thoughts he has never been folks some cold, detached observer who just watches us from afar. He is always present and continually active in our lives. In fact, you'll recall Jesus' last words after his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven, the last thing that he said on earth, surely I am with you always. God seeks. Here's the second thing I want you to notice about your biggest fan. God saves. Zephaniah says he is mighty to save. Now, if you examine that in the context of the, the, the Hebrew language, the way it's describing God is as a, an all-powerful, mighty warrior, a, a champion, a hero. In fact, that uh, Hebrew word for save, yasha, it means to, to deliver or to, to give victory to So what is God saying here to the people of Judah? I think what he's saying is, I got this. I got this. Folks, God is sovereign. He's in control. And even the most drastic of situation, he he can still bring purpose to. He can still bring purpose, redemptive purpose. Your situation now let's be brutally honest here did God offer them immediate deliverance from the oppression of the Babylonians well no he did not in fact he let them endure the consequences of their poor choices in fact it would be 70 years before the people would begin that long journey back home well here's the point I want you to get Likewise, with you and I, God is not always going to deliver us from every single problem that we have in life. Quite the contrary. God often uses that trial to grow us. But you know what? If we'll view that trial as an opportunity to see God's trustworthiness at work firsthand in our own lives he will give us the grace and the strength to endure and when you endure the trial because of his grace and strength you know what happens you become more like christ right. see in the midst of a struggle we love to quote romans 8:28 we know that all things work together for the good of those who love god and are called according to his purpose who are the called Christians, those who've committed their lives to Christ. All things, it says. And we like to camp out there and and claim that promise, and it's a great promise. Because, yes, God can assign purpose to even the bad circumstances. But what is the ultimate purpose? Well, jump forward one more verse to verse 29 there in Romans 8. Remember what it says? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So all that stuff that's going on in verse 28 that God's using for our good, the ultimate good we see in verse 29, to make us more like Jesus. Now I want you to take a second and ponder everything that God's ever saved you from, every, every, every victory that he has accomplished in your, in your life. In the ways that you've seen his hand at work personally. But then think about for a moment the victory that God has given us all as his children through Christ. Think about all the things that he's delivered us from. Well, there's three that immediately come to mind. You see, if you come to that point in life where you've made that conscious choice to repent and to come to Christ and say, I'm committing my life to you. You've made that conscious choice to trust him for salvation. You have been saved from the penalty of sin for all eternity. Now, there's a fancy $10 preacher word for that. It's justification. That's the theological term. You are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. You're made right with God. Saved from the penalty of sin. But that's not all he saves us from. See, as we continue to grow in Christ and become more like him, we are also saved daily from the power of sin in our lives. Now, the fancy theological term for that is sanctification. It's that process that God takes us through to make us more like Jesus. But here's an awesome thing. Someday, the Bible says, the Lord will return and take us to be with him for all of eternity, where we will actually be saved from the very presence of sin altogether, forever and ever. That's called glorification. You see, folks, God the Father demonstrated the greatest act of love and salvation that mankind has ever known by committing Jesus, God the Son, to die on the cross and to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. in fact, Jesus said in, in Luke 19:10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So our biggest fan seeks, our biggest fan saves. Here's the third thing that I want you to get. God savers. God savers. He will take great delight in you. I love that word delight. Psalm 149:4 says, "For the Lord takes delight." in his people. Psalm 37:23 says that the steps of the godly are directed by the Lord. He delights in every detail of their lives. The word basically means to rejoice or to take joy. He takes joy in the details of your life. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but you are God's special creation and he savors the relationship that he has with you. He delights in you. He savors the details of your life. He savors being able to see you use the talents, the abilities, the spiritual gifts that he's given you, especially when they bring glory to him because that's an act of worship. Now, some of you who are in the over 40 crowd, you may recall a movie back in around 1981 called Chariots of Fire. Maybe you saw Chariots of Fire. It's a great story. Most of you are probably just remembering the music video, though. You remember the guys all dressed in white, and they're running down the beach in slow motion. Bum, 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 and the sand's kicking up under their feet. Bum, 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 That was Chariots of Fire. It's 1924. There's a, an Olympic sprinter from Scotland named Eric Little. Eric Little actually later went on to become a missionary to China. In fact, he actually died on the mission field in China. And his deeds, among other folks, were chronicled in this, this movie, this Academy Award-winning movie, Chariots of Fire. And he created quite a stir in the athletic world when at the Olympic Games, he made the decision not to compete on a Sunday. Why in the world would he do that? Well, to him, that was the Lord's day, and he wanted to honor God, so he refused to compete. He sacrificed the opportunity to compete in his best event, the 100-meter dash. Now, he did not give up running altogether. Later on, he did compete in the 400-meter race. He won the gold medal in world record time. But Eric Little realized that his talents were actually given by God. And in a scene in uh, Chariots of Fire, he's talking with his sister, Jenny. And he's telling Jenny that he will soon be leaving for the mission field to go to China. But not yet. She doesn't understand why he would delay, why he would want to go and run. And in this movie, Chariots of Fire, he utters what is probably the most poignant line in the entire film. when he says, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give that up would be to hold him in contempt. You see, folks, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a teacher, a coach, a grocer, a doctor, a lawyer, a homemaker, a sales clerk, or an athlete. He delights in seeing you use the talents and abilities that he's given you, especially when you're using them for his glory, because he delights in the details of our lives. Folks, do you get that? Do you get that God takes great pleasure in you? You are a delight to him. In fact, so much so, this is really illustrated well in the, in the Hebrew. There's a, a parallel passage uh, to the one that's found in Zephaniah. It's in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. You don't need to, to turn over there. But like the passage in Zephaniah, excuse me, like the one in Zephaniah, it also looks forward to a time when God's people are going to be restored. And here's what it says. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride so will your God rejoice over you. That word in the Hebrew for rejoice, it's masos. It's used to describe exactly the same way God feels about us as it is in the Zephaniah passage. Same word. It means sheer delight or or joy or pleasure. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Now think about that day. There's a lot of you in the room that are married Think about that special day. Now, I know, guys, there's a couple of you that are probably trying to forget that day, but don't, okay? Think back to that special day. For me, it was August of 1990, and I was so excited. Just the myriad of emotions going through my heart and mind that day at the thought of being bound to the woman I love, you know, to, to being able to spend my entire life with my new life mate, So very excited, so eager to get to the church on time. I made a very critical mistake. I forgot the rings. Oops. Yeah, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of hard to have a wedding without the rings. Well, fortunately, there was still time. Ben, my best man, uh, he drove back to my apartment, got the rings, came back to the church, It all worked out. She said, yes, that's 28 years ago, so we're still together. So I guess it was okay. It all worked out. But think about that exciting day, just as a a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That's how God feels about us. He savors the relationship. Like fact, I, I love there's this new translation of the Bible. It's called The Voice. And what it does is it's taken the original languages and attempted to translate it into English terminology that, that brings out more of the poetic nature of the Scriptures. Listen to how it translates verse 17. It says, The Eternal, your God, is standing right here among you, and He is the champion who will rescue you. He will joyfully celebrate over you. He will rest in His love for you. He will joyfully sing because of you. Like a new husband, God savers. Now, let's move on to number four. Here's the fourth thing I want you to notice about your biggest fan. God soothes. God soothes. He will quiet you with his love. Now, Hebrew language scholars, they kind of debate back and forth over the exact translation of this phrase. It basically comes down to a couple of choices either it's translated he soothes you by his love or he will silently show you his love okay um think of it this way those of you who are parents or grandparents have you ever had to pacify a crying child well of course you have uh, you know my kids are mostly grown now i mean uh, You know, my oldest sister. Well, they're like 23, 21, almost 20, and 16. Okay, but I'm thinking back over the course of my life when they were much, much younger, they would come to me with all sorts of bumps and bruises, you know, stubbed toes and scraped knees and and so so forth. And when they get a boo-boo, they'd come toddling over and they would do this. What does that mean? Hold me, daddy. And it was really interesting that really all that was ever required of me to make everything better was just simply to hold them and rock them back and forth. I seldom even had to say a word. You know what? That's a fitting picture of this particular phrase here in Zephaniah. You see, the people of Judah, they had stubbed their toe in a big way. I mean, major boo-boo, self-inflicted boo-boo. Because they had betrayed the one true God in favor of pagan gods. And so 70 years of consequences were waiting. But listen to how the Amplified Bible translates this phrase. It says, he will rest in silent satisfaction and in his love he will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. Church, how reassuring it is to know that when we are hurting, when we are dejected, when we don't think we can go on, we're confused, we don't have all the answers, we can still crawl up into the lap of our Abba Father. You know that Aramaic word, Abba. It means Daddy. We can crawl up into the lap of our Abba, our Heavenly Daddy, and He can silently rock all of the hurt away in spite of the fact it was probably our own stinking sin that caused the hurt to begin with. How amazing is that? God soothes. Okay, now here's the last thing. The fifth thing I want you to notice about our biggest fan, God shouts. It says he will rejoice over you with singing. You're probably thinking, all right, Eric, it says he will rejoice over you with singing. How did you get shouts out of this? Well, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, The Hebrew word that's normally translated as singing is not the word that's used here. Now, this word, depending on the context, can be translated as singing. But the Hebrew word here is ranah. It means a ringing cry or a shout of joy proclamation or, or praise. Other translations of this verse will say uh, shouts of joy over you or loud singing over you. So what are we to make of this? <clears throat> Let me see if I can give you a good illustration. <clears throat> years ago, when my oldest son Ryan was playing peewee football, he was um, maybe eight, nine years old, I actually helped coach his team that year. And that season, Ryan was learning to play the Will linebacker position. Now, Will's just fancy football terminology for the weak side linebacker. He's playing weak side linebacker. And uh, we got into a game where we actually built up a pretty sizable lead over our opponent. And so the coaches decided that in order to get the maximum amount of playing time for every single kid on the roster, we would have to shuffle around a few people and put some people in different positions. And so Ryan soon found himself moving from linebacker to defensive tackle. Now, he had played defensive tackle before, so this wasn't a big deal. I mean, he, he took to that like a country boy takes to chicken fried steak and gravy. He was eating it up. And shortly after the, making the switch to tackle, old Sonic Boom... That's his team nickname, Sonic Boom. And you realize I'm embellishing this story because it's my kid I'm talking about. <laughs> Sonic Boom shoots the A-gap between center and guard, and he grabs the opposing team's quarterback, and he throws him down in the dirt for a really impressive sack. And I do literally mean dirt because the city of Moore had the peewee kids playing on converted baseball fields, so they were playing in dirt. Throws him down in the dirt of course, the, the old man, I'm standing over there in the sidelines. I'm just beaming with pride, and I can't contain myself. I'm like, whoa, yeah, that's my boy. <laughs> and, because there's people behind me in the stands. They're laughing their heads off because they realize I'm just a complete goober. And they're right. But you know what? It's a fitting description of the way God feels about us. See, he looks at you and 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 you with love. And he says, whoa, yeah, that's my child. That's the way he feels about you. He loves you. You see, in the the midst of these warnings of impending judgment, God offers these words of love and comfort and reassurance here in Zephaniah 3.17. And from that, that expression of affirmation, that testament of love, we learn that in spite of any sin, of any rebellion in our lives, that his love and his grace... And his mercy and His forgiveness are truly ours to have. See, the only condition required is that we repent, believe and then receive. Some of you are here today, you've already come to Christ. You've already committed your heart and life to him. You've come to that point where you realize, God, uh, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. And you know what? You're right. The Apostle Paul says in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there's none of us righteous. No, not one. None of us can ever be good enough to save ourselves, to earn a place in heaven. He goes on to say a few verses later in verse 23, that, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, no exceptions. Romans 5, 8, though, his love is really demonstrated in a powerful way. He says that while we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, a couple of verses later in that same chapter, it describes us as God's enemies. While we were still lost in our sin, we were the enemies of God, and still Jesus chose to die for us. But you see, sin comes with a price. Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three, it says that the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Of course, that was Jesus because it goes on to say in that same verse that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. With the heart, man believes unto righteousness. He says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Some of you have already made that decision. You've come to that crucial point of decision. You said, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. I repent. And that word repent just means to turn around. You change your mind about the way you've been living. I repent of that, and I ask you to forgive me. I'm entrusting my life to you. I'm trusting you for salvation eternal life. Some of you are here today, and you have not made that decision. Let me tell you, it is the most important decision you will ever make in this life or the next. If you've never come to that moment of decision where you've said yes to Jesus and you've received that gift of eternal life, in just a moment we're going to give you a chance to respond. Brian and Amy are going to come in just a moment. We're going to have a a time of response. And here's what I want you to do. If the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you, When we begin to sing, I want you to take that first step and just come down the aisle. There'll be men here at the front to receive you, to pray with you. And maybe salvation is not the matter at hand. Maybe God's speaking to you about something else. Maybe there's a burden on your heart and you just need somebody to pray with you. That's what they're here for. Maybe you're searching for a church home. This is the place that God has led you. This is the place that he wants you to worship and to serve. Or maybe there's just a matter of you getting things right with God and recommitting your life to him. But these next few moments are crucial. They are the most important moments in this service. If the Holy Spirit's not speaking to you and you're not responding, then here's what you need to be doing. You don't need to be moving around, heading to the bathroom. You need to be praying. Christians, you need to be praying for lost souls. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.